2: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and obviously my one, my only, Chris is podcasting with me today. Chris, who have we got on today?
1: (laughs) I seem to be following you around a little bit. Um, But today we have uh, John Brunt. Brunton, who is a historian and researcher who specializes in the medieval period of England, Europe, and the Near East, and has written several school textbooks, and um, one that I'm putting on my uh, wish list, uh, the Beauforts' Lineage, Ambition, and o- Obligation, 1373-1510. to 1510. But he's here today to talk about his new book, The Mamluks, Slave Warriors of uh, Medieval Islam. So, John, welcome to History Hack. Thank you.
2: I'm really looking forward to this one, because, again, this is a type of history that I've not studied. And I'd like to learn more about. So hopefully you're going to teach me something new today. I hope so. Okay. Do you know what? Let's just kick off. And everybody, I apologise for my pronunciation because I am not very good at Arabic. But we're going to do. My, I'm going to do my best, right? So, who or what, oh. and what is their background?
3: Oh, the Mamluks. Who were they? Well, to begin with, the Mamluk system was very old by the time. Uh, the, uh, well, the Mamluk Sultanate began in Egypt. Now, from the early days when the Arabs conquered the Middle East, they, they took slaves and eventually freed them. They found that a freed slave was always loyal to those uh, uh, who uh, liberated them. So, the, the idea that uh, every every important Amir had a number of Mamluks. Now, the word Mamluk means one who is owned, but obviously they weren't owned by that time. They were, in a sense, their former slave owner was their patron, and uh, the patron always relied upon them very strongly, much better than relatives who were always uh, out for their own purposes. Now, the Mamluks that, uh, that I'm talking about they were mostly Turks to begin with, though others like Anatolians, and even Albanians. A bit later, there were fewer Turks that were available, and uh, from 1382, the, uh, the the Mamluks were uh, Circassians. That was, uh, well, uh, I mean, a race that lived on the far side of the Black Sea. Now. What would happen is, as boys would be taken as slaves, and they were severely trained as soldiers and uh, in the tenets of Islam, and so uh, every Amir in Egypt in the time uh, the time that Saladin's family were running it had a well uh, you know a kind of small circle of Mamluks. What's different was uh, Saladin's great grandson, who was known as asili Ayyub, which means the, the su- Job, the su- the Succoring King. Now he decided he's going to raise an army of Mabluks. large num—well, large numbers. So he'd always depend on them, and this grouping remained very strong, very powerful. Many of them became amirs uh, in their own turn. The big problem was that that when Asila Ayyub died, his son tried to get rid of them, but they rebelled and murdered him and made one of their number the sultan. And so that really began, right? It wasn't conscious, the idea that a a former slave succeeded their owner, but it it worked like that. I mean, for a time, the Mamluk Sultanate was uh, hereditary. When we get to Kalaun, His youngest son reigned for longer than the rest, though he wasn't a mamluk. And After a while, the the sultan was uh, inherited of the family of Kalaun. But that ended up not working. And from the late 14th century to the end, the the sultan was always a usurper. Now, they had this funny practice all the way through. The son of the dead sultan took control, became the, the, the new sultan. But he'd always have a big protector, one of the Mamluk Amirs. And when that Amir got rid of uh, his opposition, he'd, he'd proclaim himself sultan. Now, it didn't happen with the relatives of uh, Anasa Muhammad, of, of Kalaun's family. I mean, they all turned out to be, uh, well, quite useless sultans mostly, or getting murdered, and very few of them lasted more than three years. And, well, it became unstable, until another Amir, Barkuk made himself sultan. And he tried to start his own dynasty, but it didn't work, because his son was a madman, alcoholic and paranoid, and they eventually had to get rid of him. But after that, all the, uh, the Mamluk sultans through the 15th century, they were they were all, uh, well, apart from the the sons who never lasted very long. They were all, uh, well, former Mamluks of Bab of Barkuk. He had about five or six sultans in in, in all. And then, then one of them was uh, he reigned for a long time, and he had uh, he had five sultans following him, which finally takes it up to the end of the sultanate.
1: So we. Just to sort of zoom in a little bit. There's a a decade between 1250 and 1260, which is really quite eventful for for the Mamluks, isn't it? Yes, certainly. Yeah. Okay. In
3: 1250, the Seventh Crusade was going on. And that's when Arsillerioub died. But his Mamluks succeeded. In fact, took the entire Crusading army prisoner, including King Louis IX of France, who was later known as Saint Louis. But um, they had trouble with Turan Shah and killed him. They had a lot of trouble to begin with when Aybak, the first Mamluk Sultan, tried to get rid of the other Amirs. And many of them were driven into exile. But a little bit after that, there there was a problem with the Mongols. Now, at this time, the Mongols decided they were going to conquer the rest of the world. So they they sent a large army into the Middle East. And, of course... uh, Everybody thought it was suicidal to resist the Mongols. They either said, you submit straight away, or we'll, well, we'll put you to death in the most atrocious manner possible. Best not go into details there. But they destroyed the eastern part of the Islamic world. They destroyed Baghdad. They killed the caliph by wrapping up a carpet and trumpeting him. And then they're on their way to, towards Syria. Now, the latest uh, Mamluk sultan, Qutuz, he decided to call back the uh, the mamluks in uh, exile and form a great army including the most important one baybars al-bunduqdari now in 1260 the uh, islamic army actually defeated the mongols nobody believed it could be done it was mostly because it was a, a screening force he you know the, the general had uh, pulled back some of his troops and went off to try and contest the uh, succession to the Mongol khanate, but it was a big psychological victory that Ain Jalut, which is, uh, which means Goliath Spring, which is in Palestine, and they re- you know, they destroyed the the Mongol army and they gained control of Syria as a result of it. They came to Damascus and Aleppo and some of the great cities. The ones which uh, Saladin's uh, well relatives uh, were still running. Now Baybars gained control of, of Syria, but he noticed that uh, the Sultan was not giving him any governorates, and he realised that he'd probably be executed uh, as soon as they were back in uh, Cairo. And so he plotted and killed Kutuz, and made himself Sultan. Because Baybars uh, he was, It was said he was the best of the sultans. I mean, he was the most powerful, most able, highly energetic. He used to, you know, he was constantly inspecting the troops, constantly uh, cracking down on alcoholism and the use of hashish and so on, and prostitution. He was a very strong, well, strict Muslim, and also one of the great generals. It was him that began the end of the Crusader States. You know, the states that the, uh, well, the states which the, the European Christians had created at the end of the 11th century. You know, admittedly they were much smaller, but he then started his, uh, his set of campaigns and he gradually, uh, broke him down, took the cities, the castles. And of course, it was and that completed it. I mean, he did many things. He made, uh, he made the Mamluk Sultanate a very powerful state, which was Egypt and well, the Levantine region that we call Greater Syria.
2: So, John, I've, I'm going to completely and utterly butcher the next question, so you're going to have to help me out here. Right. So, how did the Baybars...
0: Yeah. No.
2: Okay, and I can't pronounce the, re- the rest of it, but I'm going to let you do yeah. that. Um How did the region... Um, again, how did they save what was left of the Islam- Islamic civilization at this point?
3: Well, for a start, the Mongols had not uh, got to the point of uh, destroying Syria. But the eastern part, which is Baghdad and so on, I mean, that was destroyed. But as a matter of fact, uh, the caliph had a relative who, uh, who escaped to Egypt. And Baybars uh, recognized him as the, the caliph, but kept him on a very tight rein. Officially, the caliph was the sovereign ruler but it was Bebaz that carried on ruling in his name. So it was, a, it was a kind of legal fiction. But, I mean, you could definitely say that Islamic civilization flourished under the Mamluks. You could say that uh, some of the most amazing buildings at that time uh, were raised, ma- many of which still stand. And scholarship carried on. You know, Baybars made sure that Al-Azhar University uh, got its new lease of life. And some of the great scholars, they lived under the uh, the Mamluk's protection. There's one that I think the West has never heard of, but should. It's Ibn Khaldun, who was the first person who, made, well, tried to make sense of history. Uh, he was a Moroccan, and uh, he escaped to Egypt. And uh, he did quite well as a religious leader. I mean, there were a lot of... Uh, Changes I mean he well Kalawun built a uh, built a great hospital for everybody called the maristan
2: I mean that's uh, got to be something good though right, building a hospital for everybody
3: yes, I mean that was some that was um well something which hasn't known very much at the time i mean you we we have heard a lot about uh, well you know the great city of Baghdad, but once Baghdad was destroyed. Cairo was uh, was the new place where learning flourished, and charity. Oh, the uh, the Mamluks were very charitable. They believed very strongly in uh, in giving to the poor, and doing great works, and setting up Quran schools. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of drinking fountains that uh, Mamluk amirs uh, had built in Cairo. I mean, you see, Cairo is. Definitely this, uh, well, the stamp of uh, the Mamluks on them. I mean, the Sultan of Hassan Mosque, which is one of the most beautiful buildings in the world, he said. And Zuehla Gate, and the great, uh, I mean, some of the great mosques, which were mostly college mosques. You see, if a society has a mosque, it has to be somewhere where the whole community can gather for the Friday prayer. But these were uh, madrasas, these were college mosques, it's where people could, uh, could study uh, the ways of Islam and many other subjects. I wouldn't say that uh, there was very much new happened, apart from Haldun. But, I mean, when we talk about uh, Islamic learning, you know, they learned incredible things. You know, the contribution to medicine and mathematics, to astronomy and so on. They at least kept that all that alive in Mamlu period. It's just that even though it, there weren't too many advances, well, Islamic learning, art and culture actually survived, despite the Mongols. The Mamluks were the keepers of Islamic civilization for a time. And they, you know, they're great patrons of scholars. And, uh, well, I mean, their college mosques were very useful for, uh, for promoting learning.
1: I'm just wondering before I move on to the next question. We were saying about people that in the West we haven't heard of, and advances that they that were made that we we probably haven't heard of. Is that sort of to do with because um, obviously there was a with the culture war between the, the Christian Crusaders and the sort of Near East um, Muslims. Was it sort of a religious thing that our Crusaders that didn't bring that information back to Europe, so we never really learned about it?
3: Well, I mean, to begin with, the Crusades uh, brought quite a lot to Europe in their time. It's everything from uh, from rice and sugar and medical knowledge and so on. But I think there's... Uh, well, I mean, what we learned from the Arabs is mostly from Spain and from the 8th to the, the 14th centuries. I mean, the... But there's a large amount of knowledge... Well, it you couldn't really access it anywhere other than uh, the Mamluk uh, Sultanate. So I think, well, I mean, as I quote Ibn Khaldun. I mean, if historians had got hold of his works in a readable language, history would have advanced considerably at an early stage.
2: We're talking, we're doing a lot of talking today. And I'm going to, Chris keeps getting us back off track. I'm going to get us back on track with the questions. Yeah. So you've got a period of you, uh, usurpation, if I've said that word correctly, because my pronunciation's is out the window today. Because you mentioned earlier you had Sultan to Sultan to... Uh, and it just kept constantly changing. But what changes with, with Calawan and his heirs? Does it actually improve rather than going from one leader to another?
3: Well, in some cases it did. I mean, Kalawun uh, Well, he disposed of Baybars' sons, and then made himself sultan for ten years. His eldest son was not very successful, though though he was a very warlike uh, sultan. But uh, his younger son, he got well. He got to be sultan at the age of nine, mostly because the amirs uh, needed somebody as their uh, their figurehead. But yes, he was actually overthrown twice. I mean, his uh, well, after about two or three years, one of the uh, one of the other, um, lamas, I mean, Kitboga, took his place, and then he was driven out by another one called Lejean. But after Lejean had been got rid of, the uh, you know the reign, you know, the powerful Amirs decided to bring Anasa Muhammad back. Though he was about fourteen by right this time. And and they uh, the two of them, Salah and Baybars the second, controlled him, and couldn't quite uh, work with each other. But in the end, he was forced to abdicate, and the, the second Baybars, known as Baybars al the taster for his position in the, the the court. Yeah, I mean he was sultan for a year, but at this point, Anasir came back. And he reigned for, I think, uh, 31 years after that. And he was, well, I think he was about 19 by the the time he came. But then he, uh, well, he produced a very stable society. The better part of it was that the Mongol uh, threat had uh, more or less disappeared. And there's very little, uh, well, actual fighting. But he, well, it was a time that people felt that society was stable and they invested in all kinds of projects and they uh, well i mean he built a, a great canal to alexandria with Ill- irrigation schemes similar to that and he did uh, i mean he was the, the stable sultan of course he reigned longer than anybody else and he had few enemies but but it's when he died that uh, there was the problem you see they went through about 12 sultans I mean, his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandson and so on. And at this time, uh, it was mostly the Amirs uh, trying to control each one. And very often get ri- getting rid of some child sultans when they became difficult to control. Sultan Hassan was one, and he's the one that built the great mosque. But there were all kinds of problems. Plague. It reduced uh, the population. And wrecked the economy, and the others were well, there was an attempt at uh, the king of Cyprus who uh, who decided he was going to crusade and invaded Alexandria. so there was a lot of problems, and in fact, one of the strangest uh, events was that uh, that one army as Mamluks turned against him, which at this point included Barcook. It went on for a bit and then Barcook said I should be the sultan.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices. Down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. I bet to get thirty. thirty. to get thirty. to get twenty. 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 get twenty. Twenty. get fifteen. 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 Just fifteen bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobilecom switch.
1: Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: And he was the first circassian to be a sultan. And it it was a kind of different phase of uh, the Mamluk Sultanate. You know, it was mostly after one of the the sultans died. His son would reign for a short time. Then the powerful Amir would uh, finally remove him. And be the sultan himself. Some of them were quite good. I mean, you might even—well, I don't know if you ever heard of some like Sheikh and Basbay. No, <laughs> no, most people don't.
2: No, tell and us a little bit more.
3: Well, okay.
2: You might—you prob- might as well look. You've mentioned it. You might as well continue. Uh,
3: okay. Now, when Barcook died, his son Faraj, the alcoholic, paranoid one—you know—he ended up, uh, well, capturing Amir's that uh, he suspected of trying to get rid of him and uh, and having them executed, although some of them were actually at it. But they turned against one of the Amir's sheikh, who ruled about the beginning of the uh, the 15th century. He remained loyal until Farage turned on him, and Farage, uh, Farage was captured. In fact, only sheikh was the one who voted not to have him executed. And Jake did quite well, even though he started uh, military campaigns into uh, to Anatolia, which is na- now the eastern part of Turkey, and that brought him new enemies. I mean, there's a long, puzzling sequence of the black sheep Turks and the white sheep Turks at different times. And then eventually, in the middle of the uh, 15th century, there was a new power called the Ottomans. I think you might, you've might heard of them. Right, the Ottoman Turks, they were rising in power, and at times they cooperated with the Mamluks, and other times uh, they fought them. There was another Mongol threat as well. I don't know if you've heard of Tamerlane. Uh,
1: Chris Sparlow wrote a play about him once.
2: Chris Chris might have. I think Chris knows more about uh, this than I do, don't you, Chris?
1: Yeah, I have, I have heard of Tamerlane. I can't go into too much detail, but we did um did some interviews by the beginning of the year about... uh of the Mongols in the region, and Tamerlane came up quite a bit. Yes. Well, Timur the Lame. Well, okay, I mean, it was a European name, Tamerlane.
3: But, yeah, he he invaded Syria, destroyed Damascus, but he didn't go on to conquer ta- Cairo. He went off uh, to fight the Mongol, the, the Ottomans instead. And a few years later, he decided to go and conquer China, and uh, died on the way. But at that time, well, Syria was devastated. You know, they didn't. They, nobody was. Uh, nobody dared till the soil. Everything was destroyed. Damascus, probably one of the most beautiful cities of uh, the time, was just uh, torn to pieces, and it never rose again. Really. Now, the 15th century is a very bad time for the uh, the Mamluk Sultanate. In fact, it devoted a whole chapter on how it began to fall apart. It was in decay. It was even worse when the Portuguese got into uh, the Indian Ocean and disrupted the spice trade. And then later still, the, the Mongols decided that they were going to add the Mamluk Sultanate to their, their conquests. So eventually, now 1516, 1517, Selim II, the Ottoman Sultan, Conquered first Syria, then Egypt. And really, the uh, the Mamluks couldn't really stand up to it. Some people said it was because the Ottomans had guns and the Mamluks didn't really uh, make much use of them. But it was much more in conventional terms. But really, uh, I've put it in my book that Anasa Muhammad began the decay of the Mamluk system. I mean, he was no longer as uh, fearful of the Mongols. And he, well, he allowed the the new, uh, well, enslaved boys to live much better, in a sense, have a comfortable uh, living arrangement, instead of the ways that, uh, well, the early Mamluks, who were, they practically lived in a very Spartan manner, which turned them into very power, very hardy warriors. But in the end, he kind of softened the whole thing. And I think in the middle of the 15th century, uh, all of the uh, restrictions on uh, on training Mamluks were, were lifted. So they weren't exactly uh, as powerful warriors, not so much hardy. They didn't really, uh, you know, they weren't the uh, the powerful warriors that they were before. And of course, the Circassians tended to bring their relatives over and make, uh, make them senior Amirs and lead armies, or give positions of Amirs to the, uh, well, the Sultan's household. When they hadn't had that much military training, so they weren't the Mamluks of the 15th century weren't as able as uh, as before. And then, of course, the Ottomans came, and the Ottomans were the the rising power at the time. And in the end, they conquered Egypt completely and hanged the last Mamluk sultan.
1: I was just going to ask that because they're um obviously a military caste. And history tells us that military castes are never very, very good at uh, administering their empires. How were how the Mamluks at administering the, their empire? Well, that's,
3: I mean, that's a well-known point. I think they had a very effective uh, civil administration. I know that. Uh, well, they they divided the people in government. There was the men of the sword, which were the Mamluks themselves. The men of the pen who worked as scribes and officials, and the men of the turban, who were religious leaders. Now, the men of the pen were native Egyptians. They had uh, very rigorous training as scribes. You know, well, the most senior was the wazir, or vizier, who was uh, usually Egyptian. And the civilian elite were the, well, the best administrators. The trouble was the Mamluks tended to interfere with the government quite a lot. They tend, well, towards the end, they they might even farm out officers to, uh, well, to the, well, to, to Amirs who were not as, uh, well, who were in fact more keen on m- making money out of them than running them efficiently. But on the whole, the, the Mamluk Sultanate was very well run in terms of the, well, the civil service.
2: So, moving on to talking about the regular soldiers, really, yeah. how do they actually administer uh, the Mamluk state? Where, I mean, how does all of this fit in?
3: Ah, well, to begin with, all of the Mamluks had, uh, well, had fiefdoms to, in the same way as Europe, but like knights. You know, they had the income from a, well, from an estate in Egypt or Syria. The difference was that they weren't allowed to, to build large uh, possessions. In fact, when, you know, if one of them was promoted or transferred to another part of the Sultanate, their thief was uh, changed for something else. And the other one was that they weren't hereditary. You know, they, they were one, you know, Mamluks were one generation. I mean, their sons were not often, or not usually, allowed into the military class. Or else there was a, a kind of second-rate uh, corps called the *aulad anas is, the sons of the people. Although many of them became important scholars. I mean, there's a lot said about Ibn Tagribiridi, the son of uh, the son of the Mamluk Amir Tagribiridi, and he wrote his, a chronicle. So we know a lot about. Uh, what happened during the uh, well, the 15th century from him, but um, it was a one generation only. They were not allowed. Well, the inheritance went not from father to son, but from from slave owner to ex-slave. But I think it was only if you were, well, if you're the Mamluk look of a of an, a, a sultan, or or if your uh, your patron became sultan that you had much chance for advancement. Now, they used to have a system where every Mamluk Amir would be expected to raise a number of Mamluks themselves. See, the majority of Mamluks were common soldiers, you know, cavalry. If they were raised to the, the rank of Amir of 10, they'd have their fief their enlarged, but they would also have, well the obligation to raise 10 Mamluks, another one with an Amir of 40. And in the end, there were 24 Amirs of 100 at the beginning. They had 100 troops, and they uh, would also have command about 900 of the, uh, well, the auxiliary troops. So soldiers, they mostly relied on their own Mamluks. And they, well, on the whole, they were cavalry. They were trained in the use of a bow. Mounted archers fighting with swords and lances. In fact, it used to be a big spectacle to, to see uh, military trials uh, in Cairo. And Mamluks. They uh, they were governors of various cities in uh, in Syria and later in Anatolia. One of the amirs of a hundred would would be in charge of say Damascus or Aleppo or Kerak, and they would make sure that their own Mamluks would be. Uh, would, would take the important military positions. Kalaun developed a system where he had one of the senior amirs as uh, military commanders of these places, and he would also have his own nominee as commander of the citadel of the castle in order to keep them uh, in check. But I think that system probably broke down eventually. It's all personalities. Well, it was Baybars, Kalaun, Anasa Muhammad, later Barkuk perhaps. I mean, they were very powerful, energetic rulers. They paid attention to detail, but they—they <coughs> they did not. Uh, they, they were not always followed. In the same times, even some of the, uh, well, well, some of the governors of places like Damascus or Jerusalem, they got on, some of them used to build uh, aqueducts, building projects. They used to repair the. Well, city walls and set up uh, college mosques and so on and they, they were quite good with that, but very often they would be removed or died, and they uh, and the next one might not be as meticulous, and so a lot of the uh, the good work was very often lost. There was one big problem that the Mamluks had: they weren't very good when they put to sea. I mean there were attempts to conquer Cyprus for quite a long time but even when Peter of Cyprus invaded in 1365 I mean they started a fleet but then there was a, a Mamluk's rebellion and it didn't happen and they tried several times and the Cypriots and in fact some of the seaborne crusaders used to uh, to attack uh, Mamluk cities and then in the end Baspe decided he would uh he would mount a uh, an invasion of Cyprus. So for a time, the king of Cyprus was uh, was under the tutelage of the Mamluk sultans. But uh, I don't think that. Well, they eventually lost.
1: Yes, Some um, not some of the great land army you because know, the Mongols had the same problem when they tried to go to sea to go against Japan. The, the the fleets just weren't weren't any good either. I think if you're a dedicated land army, trying to become a naval power is always a bit problematic. Yes.
3: I think the Mamluks felt a bit lost without their horses. <laughs> well, well, there were attempts. I mean, mm, there was a Kurdish army called Hussein that uh, was sent against the Portuguese towards the end. As a matter of fact, the Mamluks were the first uh, people to mount cannon on ships but it didn't do very good but on the whole yeah the mamluks were land lovers and that to some extent was their undoing you know it was when yeah. the and who was it uh, well the portuguese got to india they set a basis and uh, attacked uh, all, all the spice ships uh, that had to go to cairo before anywhere else and uh, ships the pilgrims to uh, to mecca being sunk. And the Sultan showed he was not very
1: effective in dealing with him. And tended to lose a lot in prestige. Yeah, because that was one of the main reasons the Portuguese did it was so that they could have the monopoly of the uh, the trade and cut that cut out the uh the uh middleman. Oh yes.
3: Very much so. You see in the four- in the fourteenth and fifteenth century you had to uh the only way you could get spices, with very few exceptions, was to go to Alexandria. And even then, the Venetians had a near monopoly. And, of course, the spices came to, through the Red Sea to Cairo and then went on to, to Alexandria. And every time they were sold, the prices increased incredibly. So when, you, by the time they actually got to Venice... They were very expensive indeed. I mean, everybody loved spices. You know, they really, you know, spices were v- very much valued in all the way through Europe, mostly because the meat was very monotonous. But uh, I had thought about it when, when I was in Cairo. No, not Cairo, I was in Istanbul. I mean, they were selling large amounts of spices. These were very much prized. Well, I've still got a big bag of cumin that uh, I've been using ever since, and a very small amount of saffron, which at the time used to be more expensive than gold. And of course, when uh, when Vasco da Gama found that uh, there was a way round Africa, had all changed, and the Portuguese were no long well no longer the poor cousins
1: of international trade. They captured the, uh, the spice trade. Uh, I, I fear we're losing Lena to all, all the talk of boats. She's not a big fan of uh, naval or maritime history, so I'm uh... <laughs> That's right. Really it there. But um, thanks very much for um, coming on and talking to us about this. Has been uh, something that I, I didn't know that much about. Um, but um, could you just remind everyone uh, the title of your book and uh, where you out? Right. Okay. The book is called uh, "The Mamluks: Slave Warriors
3: of Medieval Islam."
1: by John Brunton. I think it comes out in nine days' time. Well, um, we'll try and, uh, try and get the book on our um, online bookshop as well, so that um, with every sale, the podcast gets a small amount of the money, and then you would get more money as an author than if it goes mm. through a, a popular rainforest-named website that I'm not allowed to mention for legal reasons. Everyone yeah. knows who I mean. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Otherwise,
3: I'm glad to see it published. I've held it yeah. for such a long time. But Yeah.
2: Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.